Alright, so tonight I'm going to talk about uh, the doctrine of election. It's very, uh, shouldn't be, but it is a, it, it can be a controversial topic. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's debate. There's a lot of people who disagree with it. But I think those that disagree with the doctrine of election, the, the trouble is, is that um, many Christians, um, and in fact I would say all Christians initially, um, at least for some time, interpret the Bible in light of their experience. Right? In other words, we look back at our experience and we read our experience into Scripture. And so... Uh, we tend, and I, and I think this is all Christians, you know, and I've used this phrase before, right? You've got our Arminians and Calvinists. And, and I always say that every Christian starts out as, as an Arminian, um, at least initially. Uh, if, if they get saved through a Reformed church, then they don't stay that way for long. Um, but initially, everyone who gets saved thinks, I did this, right? I was, I was presented with the gospel. I was presented with a choice. I weighed the pros and the cons and I thought about it and I made a decision and this is something that I, I did of my own volition, of my own free will and I chose to follow Christ. And uh, now certainly a decision did need to be made but the question is how was that decision made? Um, that's right. Um, and so we have to remember. Hey! Hey! Hey, we ain't the only ones waiting. I can't open the sheet. I thought the Mormons were showing up over there. Oh, yeah, we put all the pink people that way. I can't say we're black over here. We had a cool class over here. Good to see you. We're glad you're here. Yes. Oh, Tommy's here too. Hey. Hello, the chair. You've got white sneakers, so I need to scoot you out first. Here, I'm All right. So, um, as I was saying, you know, we we always have to keep in mind that that uh, theology builds on on itself. It, it builds on top of each other, right? Uh, these these doctrines that we talk about aren't you know, isolated from mm-hmm. from each other. And so remember, a few weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the doctrine of man. And uh, we saw in Scripture quite clearly that human beings are blind to the gospel. They are incapable. Uh, we're talking about unbelieving human beings are incapable of understanding the gospel. Uh, according to Romans, they are incapable of, of pleasing God uh, the unbelieving mind cannot submit to the law of God, cannot please God, is at enmity with the things of God. Ephesians chapter 2, in fact, it gets even worse, right? Unbelievers are dead in their sins. And, and dead people are powerless to do anything to help themselves. Uh, they're, just, they're just dead. They're lifeless, right? They cannot, uh, just like Lazarus contributed nothing to being made alive, um, he was powerless to do anything to make himself alive. It's something that, that God does. And last week we talked about the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign 
over everything. He foreordains whatsoever comes to pass, as the uh, the old Westminster Catechism says. Um, all things are foreordained by God. So when we talk about salvation, then, how do people get saved? How does that work? Um, you know, one of the uh, just great examples, I think, of... Uh, the, the, the sovereign grace of God is when we look at the life of Abraham. Right? You look at the life of Abraham and uh, Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Right? So Abram's got two other brothers, Nahor and Haran. Haran fathered Lot, and Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is near where modern-day Baghdad would be. It uh, would be where Babylon, the empire, the Babylonian empire, would, would rise someday. And Abraham and Nahor took wives, and the name of Nahor's wife was Sarai, etc., etc. Then you get to chapter 12, and now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, a lot of people don't ask, is why did God choose Abram? Why not Nahor or Haran? Um, because Abraham wasn't a God seeker. He wasn't looking for God. In fact, we're told in Joshua 24, verse 2, you can go there and look at it. I don't think I need to read it. But Joshua 24, 2 that Abraham and his family were pagans. The text is very clear in Joshua 24 too. They were pagans. They were idol worshippers. So Abraham is minding his own business, worshipping his little idols, bowing down to statues, whatever it is he was doing, and God quite literally out of the blue simply speaks to him and says, you are going to be the recipient of my covenantal grace and through you I will make a great nation. Abraham did nothing to deserve it. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't a God seeker. God simply chose him. And not only him, but we even see that with his descendants. This is what Paul talks about in places like Romans 9, right? The chapter that people either ignore or they want to ignore. But Romans 9. Beginning in verse 14. Oh, no, not verse 14. We'll go uh, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by the one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's strong language. 
before they were even born, before they had done anything good or bad, Scripture says, in order, verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election. So there's the word right there. Purpose of election might stand, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Right? So when God saves people, he doesn't save them based on their works. He doesn't save them based on what they would do or based on anything that he sees in them. He sees faith in this person and not in that person. It's not, it's not based on any internal quality. Because if it were, then we could claim some credit for ourselves. Right? And the Bible is quite clear that we cannot claim credit for ourselves. Yes, Jack? Yes? Does that mean that just like you saw God just really does hate people? No. No. God doesn't hate people. It means that God is sovereign. Oh, you're talking about that language. Does that mean that he just hates people? Okay. Yes. The, 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 so that's a great question. What that, that language, the way that is used in the Bible, the biblical word that is used there, doesn't mean hatred in the way that we typically think of hatred. Um, the Bible is very black and white. Either you're for someone or you're against someone. And, and to be against means to, to hate that person, but it's not hate in the way that we talk about it. For example, even Jesus says, anyone who does not hate father or mother, right, and, and forsake his family for my, for my name's sake is not worthy of me. Well, Jesus isn't actually telling us to hate our parents, right? But he's saying that we need to be wholly sold out for Jesus, wholly sold out for God more than anyone and love Christ more than we love father or mother or anyone else. Does that make sense? So the Bible uses hatred in that language, but it's not hatred in the way that we tend to think of hatred when we hear that kind of language. But it means that God wasn't for Esau. He wasn't for him. And for God not to be for you means that God's against you. God is either for you or against you. There's no middle ground. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So is there times where hate means to cut off? It can be, yes. Well, the word can, um, uh, it can have that meaning in Scripture. You know, we ought to hate sin. We ought to have a hatred towards sin um, where we want to to cut it off. Um, But it doesn't always mean that. That word doesn't always mean just this desire. Because when we think of hate in our minds, the connotation is a... A desire to inflict harm, right? To wish harm upon someone else. But in the Bible, the word hate doesn't always mean that. Doesn't always mean that. So he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, meaning Esau I am not for, I am against. But then he goes on to say, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Right? Is that it seems unfair then? By no means, the scripture says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or... What is the it 
It depends. It meaning salvation. Right? It, salvation, depends not on human will, that is human desire, or exertion, human effort, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Remember, we looked at that last week, right? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So this is where we get that definition from. This is where, where, where Arthur Pink gets that definition from. That when we say that God is sovereign, it means that God does what he wills, when he wills, to whom he wills, and he answers to no one. So this passage, God is literally saying, I will have mercy on the person that I choose to have mercy on. And I will not have mercy on the person that I choose not to have mercy on. And Pharaoh is an example. God simply chose not to have mercy on that, on, on that person. So in the end, what we see is that God is the one who simply sovereignly chooses who he will save. And there are some that he chooses and there are some that he doesn't. And it may seem unfair, but look at what he goes on to say. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Right? I love that Paul asked the hard questions. Why does God hold us responsible then? I mean, who can resist the will of God? If it is God's will that certain people perish eternally, I mean, how can they possibly resist that? Look at Paul's response in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Right? He's using the imagery of a potter. If a potter takes one lump of clay and he breaks it in half and one one part he, he molds into a, a vase that he's going to set on his mantle and, and the other lump he's going to, you know, turn it into clay pigeons and he's going to take it out and, you know, fling it into the air and shoot it, right? No one would ever think to say to him, well, you can't do that. You, you can't. Well, why not? It's, it's my clay. I'm the potter. I, I, I can do what I want with my clay. Paul is making that exact same argument. God is the potter and we are the clay. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of all that exists. He has the right to do what he wants with his creation. Yes, tell me. Oh, well, I was just thinking of the last time we talked about the sovereignty of God and we determined that he's always in control. Right? right. That doesn't mean that this act of picking was random or by chance. There is some purpose because he just doesn't roll the dice and see who was written in the book, right? Right. He, he, he makes a conscious choice. Exactly. He makes a conscious choice. And the purpose is his glory. Because that's what Paul goes on to talk about in this very passage. What if God, so he throws out this hypothetical question, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, such as with Pharaoh, and endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So Paul's saying, what if God desires to create some in order to demonstrate his wrath and his power 
And then what if he creates others in order to demonstrate his glory and his mercy? What if that is what God does? The answer that it's it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, well, then that is what God does, right? We are in no position to question the creator. God does what he wills, to whom he wills, when he wills, and he answers to no one. Yes. So what's the point of witnessing to people and telling them about God? That's a great question, and I love Arthur Peake's answer. And Arthur Pink said this in his book, The Sovereignty of God, which I would highly recommend. He said that we misunderstand uh, too often the purpose of evangelism. Um, and he says that the, 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 the message of the gospel, he says the message of the gospel is not a message regarding ourselves, not a message regarding humanity but rather the message of the gospel is a message regarding Christ and that glorious thing which he accomplished at the cross. In other words, the primary reason for evangelizing the world and sharing the gospel with people, there is no greater way to glorify God in the world than to tell the world of that glorious thing which Christ did at the cross 2,000 years ago. Then why does Paul say that uh, if you do this, if you believe that Jesus came and was crucified, right. died and buried, and you believe it was risen for the scriptures, and you right. believe that with your whole heart, yes, you will be saved. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. So what does that mean? It means that the second purpose of evangeliz- evangelizing is that God chooses to save through the power of the gospel. That's what Paul talks about in Romans one uh, sixteen. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. People cannot be saved apart from the gospel. They need to, they need to hear the gospel. I thought, I thought earlier you said that you can't be saved on your own account. That's correct. So how can you do that if you, when you believe the gospel? Right. Then you're saved, right? Right, correct. When you believe the gospel, then you're saved. So how does that happen, right? That's the question you're getting at. That's right. That's exactly right. So we present the gospel, and the Holy Spirit then works through that gospel to open their heart and their eyes to see it, to understand it, and to believe it. Apart from the working of the the Holy Spirit, nobody would receive the gospel. It, it's sort of like it's sort of like um, you know taking a, a group of children, small children, putting them in a room, and putting in front of them a plate of wet spinach or seaweed, and a plate of chocolate chip cookies, and then saying, leaving the room and saying, you can eat whatever one you want. You know, it, it, totally up to you. We all know what they're going to eat, right? I mean, most adults aren't even going to touch <laughs> the, the wet spinach, right? But we all know what they're going to eat. So the question is. How do you get a child to eat the spinach, which is good, without forcing them to do it? Without making them, without threatening them, without forcing them to do it? How do you do that? Abigail thinks she knows. Saying the chocolate chip cookies are poisonous. Uh, you're, still, you're still threatening. So you're still, you're still coercing them, right? The only way you could do that is if somehow you could change the desire of their heart. And that's what the Holy Spirit does... In, when we get saved, when we hear the gospel, at that moment, the Holy Spirit changes the desires of our heart so that in one moment, so the chocolate chip cookies represent sin and the, the spinach represents 
what's good for you, right? Christ. And all our lives, all we want is sin. We want sin, sin, sin. We hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit supernaturally, that, that's the miracle of salvation. The Holy Spirit supernaturally changes the desires of our heart so that all of a sudden, I don't want those chocolate chip cookies anymore. They, they don't look good to me anymore. I, I want this. I want Christ. And I don't want that sin anymore. And there's scripture that I want to take us to to, to help us see that. Yes, Jack. Well, sure, because, I mean, it, it, not always, but that can be the sin of discontentment, you know, to complain about how God made us. Um, you know, God made us the way that we are, and we should be content with what God has given us. Um, we should be thankful that the fact that, you know, everyone in this room has eyes to see, you know, we can hear. Everybody walked into the front door on their own two feet. There's a lot of people who don't have that. And so, yeah, we should be content with what we have. Because the reality is if we understand our sin nature and if we understand what we deserve from God, then we also understand that everything this side of hell is pure grace. And we need to learn to live in light of that truth. Um, so let's look at um, so some other passages that I think are just important uh, with what we're talking about. Um, you know, first of all, here's just interesting words that you see here and there. John chapter 15. Um, Jesus talking to the disciples. John. Jesus talking to the disciples. And then in John chapter 15, he says to them, You did not choose me. What verse you Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Interesting wording. You didn't choose me. You know, they were probably kind of scratching their heads saying, well, I'm pretty sure we did. I mean, yeah, you invited us to come follow you, but we, we made the choice to come follow you. But Jesus is saying, no, you didn't choose me. I chose you, right? And, um, and where that comes from is this. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Now, this is where does anybody have the NIV. Maybe you got it on your phone. Somebody pull up the NIV. John what? John 1. John 1 verse um, 11, 12, and 13. That's going to take me a minute. I got it. Okay, NIV. Go ahead. 11, 12, and 13? Yeah. He came to that which was his own, but mm-hmm. he... But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Read verse 13 one more time. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision. Right there. Not of human decision. You didn't decide... To follow Christ. Our being born again is not of natural descent. You're not born a Christian. And Jesus says, not of human decision. Right? But we scratch our head and we go, but wait a minute. 
I did make a decision. I mean, there was a point in my life where I decided I'm going to church today. I'm going to read the Bible today. I'm going to start following Christ today. Or you walk down an aisle. Right. You made that decision. Right. Or you almost died twice. Right. But this is what I God This is what I mean when I say we have this natural tendency to interpret the Bible in light of our experience. My experience says this. Someone gave the gospel to me. I thought about it. I made a decision. Therefore, that's how salvation must happen. So whatever these Bible passages are saying, this can't be right. But really, it's the opposite. The, God, the Bible is God's Word. It is authoritative. It is true. It is reliable. So what we really need to be saying is, okay, here's what the Bible is saying. Therefore, my experience must not be right. There's something I'm misunderstanding about my experience because this is what Scripture says. Look at uh, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse... uh, We'll start in verse 35. Jesus talking to the disciples... And he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me, listen to this, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. So, first of all, what Jesus is saying is that there are certain ones the Father has given to me. Right? He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The implication being... If everyone the Father has given to Jesus will come to Jesus, then the, then the only logical conclusion is that the Father has not given everyone to Jesus. He's only given certain ones to Jesus, and there are certain ones that He has not given to Jesus. Because had the Father given everyone to Jesus, they don't come. everyone would be saved. Because He says, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And we learn from Isaiah, right, that God's will will always be done. God's will is never thwarted. God's will is never frustrated. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Once saved, always saved. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. So again, Jesus is saying, look, from eternity past, there are certain ones whom the Father has given to me. And that's not everybody. It's just certain ones. And those whom the Father has given to me will come to me. They will be saved. They will put their faith in Christ. They will hear the gospel. And they will believe. And they will never be lost, right? He says, they will come to me and I will not lose one of them. We see this kind of language time and time again in Scripture. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. All right, Ephesians 1, verse 3, right at the very beginning. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Chose us before the foundation of the world. Right? This is a... uh, Doctrine known as supralapsarianism, as opposed to infralapsarianism. Supralapsarianism is is the the theological teaching that God chose even before He created the world. S U P R A supra L A P laps S A R I N. I A N I S M. Did I? And S U P R A L A P S A R I N I S M. That's super lapsarian. Yeah, he did spell it right. He actually can spell words backwards too. The other infra means that God chose after the fall, right? So God supra is He chose before the fall, who would be saved, and that comes from Ephesians one. Infralapsarian is it Adam and Eve sinned, and then God chooses, right? And that's typically your Arminian response: God reacts to the fall. Yeah, obviously, I hold to superlapsarianism. Um, you know, I think right. because of this. Right. If we have to react. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. God never reacts because reaction is. That's right. Reaction. Reaction is a response to learning something. Yeah. Right. Somebody. Some. Some. Somebody swings at you. All of a sudden, you're going to react to that, right? Because all of a sudden, you've just learned new information. There's a hand coming at me, right? Uh, God never reacts. God always simply acts because he can't learn anything. He already knows everything, and so he doesn't ever react to anything. So what's and the point? What's the point of? It's for us. What's the point of everything? It's for us. What is the point? It's for God's glory. Yeah. yeah. I understand that. Yeah. If he knows everything and how everything is going to come out, then, well, we just stop. Well, we would if God foreordained it. There's, there's, things, there's things called imperatives in the scripture. Uh-huh. Imperatives, which means commands. Right. We're called to do certain things right. as believers. Right. Christ, Christ, his very famous thing before he ascended bodily yeah. into heaven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got it. Right. And that was my point, is that if we all yeah. did stop, it would only be because God had foreordained it. It's like if I had people say, oh, so if you really believe that, then I can go skydiving without a parachute. And if God didn't foreordain for me to die that day, then I wouldn't die. I would say to him, you can go skydiving without a parachute, and I promise you God foreordained for you to die on that day. <laughs> I will prophesy that God foreordained for you to die on that day. I will prophesy using common sense. Right. So many who do not believe in election really do have that God look through space and right. time. And he said, oh, Margo, right. look at she's going to choose right. me. 
Let's get all the angels right. going and right. be excited about this. Well, that's not true. And I was waiting for someone to bring that up because what is the problem with that? Because a lot of people who, who reject the, the absolute sovereignty of God, right? They'll say, remember I said when we talked about the sovereign God, that there's a lot of Christians out there who say, I believe God is sovereign. But they don't mean that in the way that we mean it. They don't mean that in the way that Arthur Pink means it, right? And so they'll say God is sovereign. And they'll, they'll even say God chooses. Oh, I, believe, I believe God chooses, you know, uh, and God predestines, and I believe that too. But what they'll say is that God looked through the corridors of time to see who would choose for him and based on that, he chose them. Right? That means God's looking for our approval, and that doesn't make sense. Right. There's two problems with that view. Number one, it means that God learns. Right? It means that if God had to look through the corridors of time first to see who would choose him, it means there had to have been a point in time in which God did not know. And he had to first look and then learn, and then God reacts. Yeah. And if God reacts, then God learns. Which and if God learns, things, then God is not all-knowing. All of those things that you said would have disqualified him from being God in the first place. Right. Right. Finite, yeah. It means that God is finite and God ceases to be God. Right. The other problem with that view is this. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Mm. Always got to come there. Right. Well, first of all, let's, we'll start at verse 1. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Right? We're dead. Following the prince of the peace of the air. Right? Now let's skip down. Uh, just skip down to verse 4. But God, so we're dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, there it is again, in our trespasses, listen to this, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul uses resurrection language when talking about our salvation. Right? He made us alive. He raised us up with Him. Salvation, when we get saved, we are spiritually being raised to life. We are being raised from the dead. What's that? When we were dead in our sins, we were crucified with Christ and become... Well, salvation is being crucified with Christ. When we get saved, that's right. When we get saved, we we become crucified with Him because our old flesh is is killed. It's done away with. Our sin nature is done is is killed. Um, but but Paul uses resurrection language, and so when if we're looking for an illustration of salvation. Lazarus is the perfect illustration. You know, Jesus didn't ask Lazarus to make a decision. Right? He didn't invite Lazarus to come to life. He simply said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus sat up and he was alive. He was awake. And then he walked toward Christ. Right? So, and and that's the age-old debate. What comes first? Faith and then salvation? And, re- and regeneration, faith and regeneration, or is it regeneration and then faith? In other words, do we have to believe in order to be made alive, or are we made alive in order to believe? Well, the answer is simply in asking this question, can dead people have faith? No, right? 
Because what is faith? When we define faith, how do we define faith? The hope of things. Yes, the hope of things, right? A verb, though. It's an action. It's something we do. Faith is something we do. Uh, my uh, New Testament professor at Toronto Baptist Seminary, Dr. Garlington, he described faith as leaning on something, right? Faith is a leaning on something for support so we don't fall down. Faith in Christ is leaning on Christ for eternal life. It is leaning on Christ uh, for salvation. It is something that we do. It's an action. We have to believe dead people can't act. They cannot do things. So, if we use Lazarus as the illustration, first he was made alive, and then in faith, he walks to Jesus. Right? That is the picture of salvation and regeneration. First we are made alive and then we believe. Now granted, they happen like back to back, right? They're almost inseparable, but they are different. There is made alive and believing so that we might walk to Christ. And here is why. So I haven't gotten to the second reason why why salvation can't be God looking down the corridors of time and why salvation can't be we have to believe first in order to be saved here's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing you didn't do this the grace and the faith it is the gift of God excuse me not as a result of works so that no one may boast if our salvation is dependent on anything that we do, even if we can say that salvation is 99.999% God, and I do that one little part, then we have something to boast in, right? We have some reason we can pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm saved because I was... And, and, and my brother or my best friend didn't get saved because I was maybe a little less prideful than he was. I was, I was a little more humble than he was, right? I, I, there's something that I did that was a good thing that got me into heaven and not him. But the scripture says, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. In the end, when we get to heaven, we will all recognize that we are there simply because of what has Christ, what Christ has done for us alone. Christ did it all for me. Right? So when we talk about salvation, the Bible talks about salvation. Salvation is not we're out there floundering and Jesus throws a life raft out to everybody with a rope tied to it and says, if you'll choose to climb in, I'll pull you to safety. There's a lot of Christians who think that's the picture of salvation. But if that's true, then they get some credit, right? They chose to climb in. Other people didn't, but they did. Right? That's not how the Bible describes salvation. Salvation is all human beings are floating face down, dead in their sins. And, and they deserve to be there. That's the important thing. Right? Nobody caused, nobody forced Adam and Eve to sin. They chose to of their own free will. They really did have a free will. Nobody forces us to sin. Right? We choose to sin. We are not puppets. We're not robots. We are free moral agents. When we sin, we choose to sin. We choose to act badly. And we have brought that condition, we brought it on ourselves. Right? It's like being in death row. We deserve to be there. We're all 
we're all dead in our sins, floating downriver toward the eternal waterfall, and we deserve to be there. We put ourselves in that position. And Christ, in His amazing grace, reaches into the depths of our sin, lifts our lifeless body, and breathes into us the breath of life. And then He sets us on dry ground and says, Go and sin no more. He saves people. If we are saved, it is because God saved us, not because of anything that we've done, not because He looked down and saw that we would choose for Him. That wasn't how it worked either. Now, going back to Tommy's question, we don't know what it's based on. It, it's, it's not arbitrary. God didn't cast dice. It wasn't eating, meeny, miny, mo. We don't know what it's based on, but we know it's not based on anything in us. Nothing that we do but simply based on God's amazing grace and mercy. And it is amazing grace and mercy. Because I've used this illustration before. Um, like when we talk about, sometimes people will struggle with this. Well, it, it, it seems unfair. I've heard people say, if that's how salvation works, then why doesn't God choose everyone? But I think that that is asking the wrong question. I think the better question to ask is, why does God bother to choose even one? Because all of humanity, if we remember the verses that we looked at about mankind, right? All of humanity is literally shaking their fist at God and saying, stay out of my life. I don't want you apart. Leave me alone. Let me live in my sin. And yet God in His amazing grace says, you know, you're on your way to hell and you deserve to go there, but I'm going to save you anyway. I'm going to open your eyes to the glory of Christ. And that's exactly the kind of language the Bible uses. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We looked at this before, but we looked at it in terms of the doctrine of man. But now let's look at this same passage, but with regards to salvation. Yes, Jack. Does that mean we're all evil? What's that? Does that mean we're all evil? We are. By nature, yes. We are inherently evil. Um, sin is not what we do. Sin is what we are. We are sinful. Um, it's a hard one to swallow, isn't it? No, we are we are by nature evil and sinful. Look at Second Corinthians, though. Second Corinthians four. Verse 3. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those whom are perishing. That's all unbelievers, right? Because all unbelievers are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the devil is actively blinding unbelievers. He's got, he's got a blindfold. We... We can't see the gospel. What this, what this passage describes, it's like going up to someone that is 100% blind with a gospel track and putting it in front of them and saying, look, just read it. Read it and you'll believe. Well, I, don't even, I can't even see what you're talking about. We cannot see the gospel. So how do we get saved, right? In this room, if we're saved, right? if you know that you're saved, then the question is, how did that happen then? If you were blind to the gospel, how was it that when the person presented the gospel to you, you did see it and you did 
understand it. I did, right? When I was presented with the gospel, I remember thinking, holy cow, I don't want to go to hell. You know, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. You know, what do I got to do? And the way I got saved, the person said, well, you know, say the sinner's prayer with me. I'll say it. You repeat after me. Okay, you say it. I'm going to pray it. And I got saved at that moment. After that, he gave me some discipleship. You know, here's the Bible. You need to read it. I'm going to read it. You need to go to church. I'm there. Point me in the right direction. Right? How did that happen if I was blind to the gospel? Well, here's what, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. Um, Keep them from actively seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the God. Verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is, you, Paul is echoing the language from creation. Mm-hmm. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And when the sun, the sun's not created until later. Let there be light, and there was light. What, what Paul is describing is that we were blind and living in darkness. Someone presented the gospel to us, and God spoke into our heart and said, let there be light. I believe it. Right. Yeah, I, I believe it. I believe what I'm hearing. I believe what you're saying. It makes sense to me. Right? That is, God does that. And you've got to do that with everybody. But God doesn't have to because God doesn't owe us anything. We're all on death row and we deserve to be there. And when the governor pardons just a handful of people from death row, you never hear anybody say, well, that's not fair. If the governor's going to pardon one, he's got to pardon all of them. Nobody says that, right? Because we all understand they all deserve to be there. right? If he pardons a few of them, good for them. But he doesn't have to pardon all of them. We're all on death row and we deserve to be there. And the great governor of the universe chooses to pardon some. We don't deserve it. And he's not obligated to pardon everybody. Because we put ourselves on death row. We brought it on ourselves. Yes, Jack? Would a more accurate depiction than like the whole light bulb would be like just this like huge giant spotlight kind of just moving around making people I want to pick it No, because that sounds random. And it and it's not it's not random. It's uh, the the God has we saw that in Ephesians chapter one. God has chosen certain ones from before the foundations of the earth. Jesus says in John chapter 6, All that the Father has given me will come to me. There are certain ones throughout all of world history. God knows them by name. That's an amazing thing when you think about that. Is it from before the foundation of the earth, God knew your name. He could picture your face. And he knew that at some point, at the right moment in world history and in your life, the gospel would be presented to you and God would say at that moment, let there be light. Or he would say at that moment, Matthew, come forth. Right? Margot, come forth. Right? 
I mean, to, to each of us, it's like Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Your name would be spoken and he would say, Come forth, and we would be made alive. And we would walk to Christ. Yeah, Bobby. I can't hear you. What? The doctrine of illumination. Right. Yeah. Explaining. Right. I don't know if everybody's familiar. Yeah. Well, a lot of these kind of. I mean, I've also been sort of talking about the doctrine of irresistible grace as well, right? I mean, these these things, you know, sort of blend into each other. Right. And uh, and yeah, the doctrine of illumination is is the idea that only the Holy Spirit can enable us to to fully understand God, to understand the gospel, and to fully know God. I mean, God reveals Himself in two ways: there's general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what can be known of God from creation. But even then, you know, John Calvin uh, argues in his Christian Institutes that we can't even rightly understand general revelation apart from special revelation. Um, We need, to some degree, special revelation to rightly understand general revelation. Because even general revelation in and of itself is a spiritual revelation of the invisible God. In other words, Calvin described it this way. He said that when that, that in general revelation, in creation, when God created matter, it was as though the invisible God put on creation like a cloak in order to make himself reveal to humanity. You can't see God apart from general creation because God is invisible. And so God creates so that we might see him in some way, in some form, and that we might know him, but we can't rightly know him apart from special revelation. We can't rightly understand general revelation. How come all of the scientists, though they have the general information, they come to wrong conclusions? They come to wrong conclusions, that's right. If you seen the sun, you seen the father. I'm sorry? If you seen the sun, you seen the father. Yes, but only the Holy Spirit can enable people to realize that. I mean, the Pharisees who crucified Jesus, they didn't realize that. They saw the Father, but they didn't know they were seeing the the Father. They didn't know that they were seeing the Son. Right? They didn't know that they were seeing either one of them. The apostles did. The apostles did, yes. That's all I'm saying. That's right. At least 11 of them. There was Philip. said, show us the Father. Because they weren't trying. And he goes, how long do I have to be with you? Yeah. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Right, so, right. I mean, even though God's invisible, He probably, I mean, Jesus and all them have a structure of right. human beings because yeah. He says at the beginning, we're right. make man and all in Or you think of Peter's great confession when Jesus asked him, Who do you say that I am? And he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, Blessed are you, uh, Simon Barjona, for, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father has, right? You know this because the Holy Spirit has made this known to you, right? It's not because Peter was smarter than anybody else. It was simply because... So this is the doctrine of illumination, that, that the Holy Spirit is what is needed for us to know God. To know anything about God has to come to some degree, by the Holy Spirit. Um, so we don't have to read the Bible <laughs> We do have to read the Bible. First of all, we're commanded to read the Bible. Yes, Karen. Yeah, I'm tired, so I don't know if I'll get this right. But um, 
I think um, if we, like, I don't know, just remember Sonny School as a kid, you learned that God died for all, but is that true? Like, did he die for his alone or for all humanity? His elect. He only died, yes, he died, he died. I just wanted to... Not for all. And that's right. really tricky. Not, not for all. Not for all. And, and, and we'll get to that. There, I, I want to have a talk where we talk about the doctrine of the atonement. Okay. But, but still, I'll, I'll answer it in, in part here because that's important. Um, yeah, the, the, Jesus only laid his life down for the elect. And there's, there's many passages that, that talk about that. Jesus, for example, says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for who? Sheep. The sheep. Right? For the sheep. Right? Or another one might be uh, Colossians chapter 2. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but Colossians chapter 2 is another very important text. Um, verse uh, 13. 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses There it is again, right? We're, just, we're, we're told all over the place We were dead in our sins And the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive Resurrection language There it is again Made alive Together with Him Having forgiven us of all of our trespasses Listen to this By canceling the record of debt That stood against us With its legal demands This He set aside Nailing it to the cross Canceling Torta Canceling the record of debt if Jesus canceled the record of debt for everyone, then what does that mean for everyone? Everyone goes to heaven. Right? Why could God send anyone to hell if their debt has been paid? It would be unjust to send them to hell. The only logical explanation is that Christ only canceled the record of debt for those whom God had given him. And that also just logically makes sense. Right? Why would Jesus die for the sins of people that he knew were not going to be saved? Right? Now that's not to say that Jesus' blood is insufficient to pay for the sins of everyone. It is. It is sufficient to pay for the sins of all, but it is only efficacious for the sins of the elect. It's only applied to God's people. Yeah. So I forget that No, that's fine. It's interesting because I think of like with this discussion that it's like a chicken and the egg situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can you have an egg without a chicken? So it's how can you be like how? This is where I'm getting tongue-tied. Um, so where um, you like we think that it's because we can't we. Um, are the ones who accepted Christ. You know, where we were um, we were chosen way before we even knew to say anything. Right. So, and it's really interesting. It's like the it's, it's like the Christian chicken and the egg question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, we know the answer to that, right? What came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken did, right? The chicken God didn't say, let there be eggs. Yeah. He said, let there be chickens. Yeah. So, I mean, it just like yes. I think the chicken and the egg thing is just super silly anyway. Right. I'm not trying to analyze yeah. God's word, but it's just like sometimes you wonder is the true question was always the Christian one and the world made it a chicken and the egg question. <laughs> and, and the reason this is important is because remember I said several weeks ago that the two lenses through which we interpret all of 
in, in his sinful state and how do we understand God and, and how you answer those questions is how you're going to interpret everything in the Bible and so when we really understand mankind and we understand who God is it elevates the glory of God it gives us a greater reason to worship him because we realize I mean this hit me like a ton of bricks when I first came to understand the sovereignty of God and my salvation just as easily as God chose me he could have not chosen me right I don't know why God chose me it wasn't because of anything in me I didn't deserve it it wasn't because it certainly wasn't because I was better than the next person I mean if you knew me before I got saved my good, if there was anybody worthy of hell it was me right why God chose me I don't know and so it is humbling to realize that he did and I am so thankful right I am so thankful um, so then why evangelism then right and, and I think that's an important question to come back to is because as Paul says in Romans 1 16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation right at the end of the day we don't know who God has chosen we don't know who the elect are right our job is to share the gospel with everyone and let God sort them out right share the gospel with everyone and let God sort them out but it also it should actually this truth should actually motivate us to be more evangelistic because it, it takes the pressure off <laughs> right because I remember you know I got saved as an Arminian and I spent several years as an Arminian Christian and I was very zealous for evangelism um but I would get so frustrated and down on myself when I would share the gospel with people. And they're just like, nah, I don't, I don't believe in it. They'd start to walk away, right? Wait, 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 wait. You know, so, well, what about this? What? No, no. Wait, 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 wait. Right? I, I just, wait, wait. Give me another chance. Yeah, you're trying to prove to them on your own. And then, inevitably, if they rejected it, I felt like, man, I, I need to know my Bible better. I need to, I got to be more prepared for these questions. I got to... Well, now, I don't feel that way at all. I mean, sharing the gospel with someone, it only takes me 30 seconds. Because if that person is one of God's chosen, they're going to hear the gospel and believe it. And it's simply a matter of saying, look, understand, you're a sinner. You're in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And if you'll believe that, salvation is yours. And if they go, you know what? I don't want to talk about religion. All right, have a nice day. Right? I've done my job. Uh, Martin Luther used to say our job is to get the gospel from our mouth to their ear and it's the Holy Spirit's job to get it from their ear to their heart. Right? Our job is just to give them the gospel and then just pray for them and let the Holy Spirit do its work. You cannot convince a person into heaven. You just can't do it. Right? Who was it that said the gospel is not an invitation but a proclamation? Was that pink? That was pink. The gospel is not an invitation concerning sinners but a proclamation. And it's not a proclamation... Uh, concerning uh, um, and it's a proclamation concerning that glorious thing which Christ accomplished at the cross right in the end we're just proclaiming what God has done the gospel is just a a clarion call saying you're all sinners and there is a means of salvation that has been provided if you'll just believe now of course again we can go back to the question yeah but to say that if you'll just believe right so is the gospel a, a real invitation is it a real invitation 
the answer is yes. It is as real of an invitation as if I put some chocolate chip cookies in front of Corbin and a bowl of wet spinach and said, you eat whatever you want, son. I guarantee I know what he's going to eat, right? He's smiling. He's like, I know what I'm going to eat. He's not even going to look at that wet spinach. I wouldn't eat the wet spinach, right? But it's a real choice, right? I mean, it, it, that, that's a real choice. You, you choose, but I know that for most kids and most adults, right, they're going to choose the cookies every time. I mean, they're just going to. So the, the, the offer of the gospel is a real choice to every human being. But it's just when left up to themselves, when left up to their own decision, their own desire, they are always going to choose sin. They are always going to reject the gospel because it's not appealing to them. Jesus, the gospel, the Bible, that just doesn't appeal to them at all. It's just... And so when, when, when Luther, in the book that Bobby started reading, The Bondage of the Will, you know, he'll argue that our wills are bound by our own desires. We're bound by our own desires, right? Um, we can't go, and that's true in every area of life. We, we cannot and will not, as human beings, do something against our own desire unless we're forced to by some reason, right? Like, some of you say, well, I go to work every day and I don't want to do that, right? But... You're forced to, to what? To get food, to pay your bills, right? I mean, you, we're, we're made to do these things. We'd be right? slaves. But at the end of the day, we, we don't do things against our will unless we're made to, right? Well, God doesn't make us choose Christ. He simply changes the desire of our heart. So that one day, we don't want Jesus, but the very next moment... That's what we want. That looks good to me. I want Christianity. I want the Bible. I want church. I want all these things that always seemed really silly to me before, but man, look really good now. And sin doesn't look so good anymore. I don't. I don't like when I do that. Right. Um, but we're like we're like we're like people that can't stick to diets. We keep going back to the chocolate chip cookies every now. And we can't help it. Oh, then we feel guilty. Oh, don't eat those. Right. <laughs> yeah. Popeyes, right, right. He'll make you I can say with all certainty, I grew up watching Popeye and did not make me want to eat cans. Made me want to eat it. Especially when my grandpa would say, "You put hair on your chest." <laughs> Not any girls anyway. Fresh finish all the way. I can get muscle. My brothers all tried it because they wanted to. I forgot what chapter was, but then that. Um, there was a veil, and the God of this world had covered up. So, okay. I forgot exactly. Yeah, Second Corinthians chapter 4. My thinking is because it also means that God removes something, right? So He opens yes. up your eyes, or He opens up your heart. It's not ears. How is that different from Him putting something inside your heart? 
putting something inside of us. Well, we think that our faith is not our own, right? It's something that God gives us. Right. To me, that means that He brings something to me. Right. But in this case, it's actually removing something from me that has been there from the beginning. The blinders. The blinders. Yes. Is that removed so He then can give because that would actually be the thing that is blocking His ability to give me faith? Uh, I think we may be thinking of these things too concretely. Um, like how the devil blinds us. Is there an actual object in front of our souls or whatever? Um, uh, it's just, it's a, it's a spiritual blinding. Um, and even when we talk about faith, um, we get that from Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We are saved by grace through faith and this not of ourselves, but is the gift of God. And we use the language that God gives us faith. Right? He gives us the faith to believe. But to be more specific, it means that God gives us the desire and the ability to believe. Um, because remember that faith, faith is not, it's, it's not a noun. It's not something that's tangible that you can hold on to and stick in your pocket. Right? Uh, faith is a verb. Faith is believing. It is trusting. Right? So God, when, when we talk about God giving us faith, what we're specifically saying is that he gives us the desire, the willingness, and the ability to believe. And that goes hand in hand with removing the blinder. So I don't think he has to do one before he can do the others. It's, it's two sides of the same coin, so to speak. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, so, I wonder, I really, I mean, when we were saved, my brother and I, we, um, we, we went around. We had, we built a fort and a Bible stayed in it. <laughs> and then, then, then we also, so that poor Bible got rained on, <laughs> everything. But then we had our own little Bibles that we were given, and we would go door to door and witness to people as children, you know, um, not knowing. And people were like tickled. Oh, they're so cute. And even the people that slam the doors, oh, they're so cute. I should have just been nicer. <laughs> you can hear them behind the door. And, um, and then we started, we found some kids that we found out that didn't have food to eat. They were climbing the, the mango trees and eating the mangoes green. And you get really sick if you eat them green. Mm -hmm. And so we started bringing them, um, my mom did not know this, but canned food from our house. <laughs> Mostly the canned spinach, <laughs> but but and then we and so we would do stuff like that and um, but then like all the stuff in between and my parents not setting the great example it was easy to get caught up in the world again. yeah and then later in life it seemed like I came to a place where I'm like you know what I'm gonna ask my 
uh, ex-husband to have the boys for a month. I left the life of sin I was living in and stayed in my car. No one knew this, but for a month, um, I lived on my car. Oh, man. <laughs> and um, I lay, I, my ex-husband didn't even know this, but I was a block away from the kids should anything happen with him. Hmm. So I stayed in a park and, wow. and, and just prayed and prayed. And God gave me some, um, he gave me some tools and guidance and, and just, just yeah. the, the chance to pour out my heart as an adult and live a mature Christian life, I yeah. think. Or yeah. to grow into a mature. Right, right. We're always growing into mature. Well, <laughs> but I, I think your, your question was, can a person be saved yes. and then live in sin for a while? And that is certainly possible for the, for the elect to fall into a time of, uh, of sinful living and to grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, however, if, if that person, we'll talk about that later as well, I want to talk about the doctrine of, the, the, of, of perseverance. Um, but if that person is truly saved, they will return to Christ before dying in this world, before passing on to the next life. Um, because the Holy Spirit simply will not allow, right, Hebrews chapter 12, I mean, God disciplines his children. The Holy Spirit will not allow his children to just uh, live uh, for the rest of their life in sin. If you have the Holy Spirit living within you, then the Holy Spirit will probe your conscience. And it may take weeks, months, and sometimes even years, but eventually the Holy Spirit will bring you back to the fold. So that is possible. Um, but that's not to say, um, you know, this whole idea of the carnal Christian, that a person can, you know, say the Lord's Prayer and get baptized and then just live the rest of their life in sin. But, oh, they're saved because, you know, they put faith in Christ because a, a, a transformed life is the evidence of conversion, right? Yeah. Um, uh, R.C. Sproul used to like to say, you know, the very word itself, conversion, means to be converted from one thing to another, right? To be changed. It's really, it's a mathematical term, right? Um, so if your lifestyle hasn't changed, then what have you been converted from? Likely you haven't been converted uh, if you're still living the way you've always lived. Um, but it is possible for a person to be saved, grieve the Holy Spirit for a time, and then and then be returned. In the end, I don't think it matters that much if we know the day we got saved. I think what matters is that we know that we're saved now. Yeah. Right? That we know that we're saved now. That's ultimately what matters. I was just more curious about it than doubting my faith. Yeah. If that helps. Yeah. I'm surprised no one... Um, brought up that uh, that one uh, famous passage that God is not willing that any that any should perish but that right um, where is that at in the Bible yeah <laughs> is it Peter you gotta know where that is let's start in Genesis yeah. <laughs> I can find it yeah it's easier to find it in here that any should perish. Yeah, 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9. All right. That's the famous... That's the one that everybody wants to go to, right? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But who is right? Peter talking to? Right. Who is Peter talking about? Context matters? Context. <laughs> 
context, right? So right. So well, he's talking to believers, right? He's talking. Yes. Right. He's talking to verse one of chapter one. Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Right. So first of all, who is he addressing? Uh, he's addressing them. Believe in Jews. And then he's also talking about end times. Because if you go back to the beginning of chapter 3, he says, uh, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up to you sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through our apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. So he's reminding them, look, there's going to come a day when people are going to say, look, it's been 2,000 years. You keep saying Jesus is going to come back. When, when is he going to come back? I mean, you Christians are just waiting forever. But then he says, verse 5, they deliberately overlooked this one fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exists are stored up for fire and kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So he's talking to Christians. He's trying to encourage them that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, right? So in the mind of God, it's only been like two days since Jesus died on the cross, right? And then he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness. The promise meaning that what Jesus says, of all that the Father has given to me, will come to me, and that Jesus will return someday for His people. He's not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, believers, not wishing that any of you should perish but that all of you should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, etc., etc. So he's so, speaking to the one that was saved early on and then living in sin. Yes. He's, he's talking about believers. That, that God is patient with them, not willing that any of his children, any of his elect, any of his sheep will perish, but that they will be saved. Right? Um, and that's always a that's always an important one that uh, that people tend to want to pull out. God's not willing that any should perish. Verse eight is also used out of context regularly. Verse eight, <laughs> do you not overlook this fact? Right, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is, is like a day. Right, right. Men, 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 men like to use that verse when talking to their wives. What? I, I told you I would do that and it hasn't even been a day yet, right? Like a thousand years. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> day is like a thousand years, thousand years like a day. use that to creation. Oh, right, right. Good questions. Any other? about the Jews singing way further for Christ to come. The first time. Oh, right. They've been waiting. Yeah, they waited many, many years. Long, long time. Yeah. Almost about, almost about as much time. It's uh, about uh, two, two thousand years. Yes, two, two thousand years from Abraham to Jesus. Yeah. Two so thousand years. years. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yes, Jack. 
you know, it says a thousand years like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. If you had a bad work day, it lasts like a thousand years. Oh, well, that's true. Sometimes it feels like some <laughs> days last a thousand years. It's mine did today. Yeah, wait till you get all the regular. Yeah, <laughs> so true. Sunday right. really fast. Like, is it already Christmas again? <laughs> Any other questions on the topic before we close in prayer? Sure. Um, one of my doctors that I work with, he's really sick. I think he has ulcerative colitis. Oh. Ulcerative colitis. So um, he's just having really bad bouts of it, and he looks really ashen and Terrible. Sounds so painful. Like, it is, and okay. just uh, praying for him. Yeah, yeah, I'll pray for him. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Can I Pam Kelly and Linda Spencer? Pam Kelly and Linda Spencer, sure, we'll pray for them. Well, any other prayer requests then? Uh, no? I want to pray for sleeping good. Sleeping good. Oh. We'll do that. We'll do that. We need to pray for that for sure. I need something all right well let's uh let's let's close in prayer then our gracious god heavenly father uh lord we um just in light of our conversation and the passages that we've looked at father we are so incredibly thankful lord for those of us in this room who um, have faith in christ we recognize that it's not because of our doing but simply because of your amazing grace and mercy and love and we uh, stand amazed by your grace and goodness toward us, Lord. And um, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, and we adore you, Lord. And we pray that this truth would just uh, compel us uh, to live a life that brings you glory and honor, Lord. And um, Father, we do want to pray for uh, this doctor that Priyana works with, Lord. We uh, just pray for healing in his body. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would restore his health, that you would ease his suffering. Um, I don't know where he is spiritually, Lord God, but um, whether he is saved or unsaved, we pray that you would use this as an opportunity to, to direct his attention toward Christ, Father, and that he would find his, his, uh, his comfort, his peace uh, in Christ. And, um, and Father, we want to uh, pray for, um, for Lincoln, that you would help him to, to sleep well at night. Uh, to get good rest, Lord, to, to have good dreams. And Father, we pray for healing for Miss Pam Kelly and Miss Linda Spencer as well. We pray that you would restore their health and their strength, Father. And, uh, and Lord, we just, uh, again, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for your goodness toward us. And Father, we pray for um, everyone else in this room uh, who has not placed faith in Christ, Lord. Uh, Father, we do pray that it would please you uh, to open their eyes to the glory of Christ. We pray that you would speak light into their hearts and that you would uh, raise them to life through the power of your word. And uh, Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So were you saved in Reformed faith? Like, 